It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. The book of Hebrews is a phenomenally rich book. And I just love how the entire book is a declaration of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It is a fresh reminder that, as Dan McConaughey would say, that there are no superhero Christians. There's just normal Christians. Well, in today's Daily Thunder episode, Dan McConaughey is going to give us an overview of the entire book of Hebrews with some rather powerful reminders. But before we get into that message, I just want to remind you that we have a free PDF available called Five Keys to Walking Through Difficulty. I know that a lot of people in this season have been facing just trials and circumstances that are rather hard. So what are some biblical principles for us to navigate the season of life that we are in? If you're interested in downloading that Five Keys to Walking Through Difficulty, all you need to do is go to the ellersley.com website and there should be a pop-up that pops up right on that main screen that invites you to sign up for our email list and it'll automatically send you a free PDF download from Eric Ludi on the five keys to walking through difficulty. Now, if the pop-up doesn't show up, you may just need to go to a different browser and go to the ellersley.com and it should be the first thing that you see there. Now, without further ado, here is Dan McConaughey investigating and giving us an overview of the book of Hebrews. I wanted to just take a walk through the book of Hebrews this morning. It's been quite an interesting journey for me in the book of Hebrews. For years, Hebrews has been, because of the commentaries that I've read, I've believed them when they say that it's difficult to understand. It's like a labyrinth and we can't figure it out and we just don't know what's going on and it uses all this high language and everything. But as I've studied it, I've come to a different conclusion and it is a glorious book. So the book of Hebrews, I see it as a manifesto for the person and work of Christ and against the traditions and religions of men. It's a manifesto. So the occasion of the sermon is interesting. Um, One of the things that I learned as I was reading through this, studying it out, is that there, in reality, is that there are no Christian heroes. No Christian heroes. And we think, what? No Christian heroes? That's right. Those we call heroes are what the Bible calls normal Christians. So, really, it's just normal saints, and then there's the rest of us. And if you recall, when I did a a session one time called Left of Bang, it talked about how we can do, we can determine anomalies in a situation by looking at a baseline of what is normal. Today, when we look around at what is normal Christianity, we're looking at what is average Christianity. In order to see normal Christianity, we go to the Word of God, and it talks about faithfulness, endurance, victory, rejoicing, joy, 
uh, declaring the word, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples. It doesn't say that normal Christianity is what we see today as average. So what we're dealing with is that the normal Christian is what we call heroes. That's what God expects and provided for every single one of us. So the occasion of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews is that the author recognized that there was going to be some great attacks on the church. And those attacks were basically the dangers that they were facing is a religion that masquerades as Christianity. It's simply a religion, though. And so, I don't know if you remember back in 1843. Anybody remember back then? Maybe I'm older than the rest of you. Uh, Back in 1843, a guy named Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. But a little bit different view of that, I hold, that religion is the opiate of the church. We love religion because it makes us not responsible. So the immediate situation that the author of Hebrews was addressing was a Christianized Judaism. In other words, they were going to take Judaism and add Jesus to it. They were just going to make it another sect of Judaism or any other religion. Now we have the other side. We have a Judaized Christianity. In other words, a Christianity that operates by the same principles as Judaism. And those are, you do the right thing at the right place at the right time, and you're good to go. That's what we hear all the way through the Old Testament. Do the right thing at the right time, at the right place, and you're worthy of God's blessing. Um, In John 14, no, I'm sorry, John 4, um, verse 19, it's the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, in the temple, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in Jerusalem, at the right time, doing the right things, but in spirit and in truth. The reality of it is that true worship is everything all the time. If you remember in Romans 2, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So what he's saying there is that a burnt offering stays on the altar until it's burned, and then they move the ashes away. A living offering 
stays on the altar. It doesn't jump off ever so often. It's always there. So the way that Christianity is supposed to operate is that it's everything all the time at any place. That's what true Christianity is. It's not a Judaized Christianity that says, oh, we have worship for 45 minutes at the beginning of the service, and then we do this, and then we do that, and then Monday I can go back to living my life again. Christianity is everything all the time. So the intent and purpose of the book is to address those things. I, I didn't coin a phrase, I stole a phrase and minted it. How's that? <laughs> um, my brother Matthew, no, that's not accurate. Um, there's a movie star named Matthew McConaughey <laughs> who um, made a film that got all thumbs down. It was not a good film. It was called Failure to Launch. Now, failure to launch is an interesting phenomenon. It's the phenomenon of adult children not successfully making the full transition to mature adulthood. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about Christians who don't make the transition to maturity. So the intent is to prevent spiritual failure to launch. The intent is to wean us away from our modern preoccupation with the start of our Christian life and direct us to finishing well. We're preoccupied with the start of our Christian life. We love to think of Jesus as Savior, and so he is. But he's called Savior only 24 times in the New Testament. He's called Lord over 700 times. But we're preoccupied with the saving part because we like that. We're less occupied with the slave part when he is Lord and we are slave. And then it's to convince us to turn away from the idol of youth to serve the true and living God as mature men and women in whom the Spirit of God is. Today we emphasize the new birth. The ancients emphasized being faithful to the end. We moderns talk of wholeness and purposeful living. They spoke of the glories of the eternal kingdom. The emphasis in our attention has shifted from completing the Christian life to the beginning of it. So those are the things that we've been, that, that the intent is. And so the book is full of warnings and teachings. I don't know if you remember in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, my goal is that everybody be fully taught and fully warned so that I can pre present you fully mature to Christ. That was what Paul wanted to do. Fully taught and fully warned so that you could be presented fully mature. So the teaching from the book of Hebrews is, number one, that the Jewish system was merely a copy of heavenly things. 
of which true Christianity is the only full, complete reality. It's that the Jewish system was ever and always only meant to be a prophetic signpost of better things to come, and that the era of better things has arrived. It's here. It came with Jesus. Jesus ushered it in, and the former things are, this is really interesting, the former things are passed away, not will pass away. The former things are passed away and abolished. Consider Paul in Philippians 3, where he talks about all of his Jewish heritage. Born a Hebrew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, um, a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, with zeal so much that he was persecuting and murdering the church, to the point where he says, and in accordance with the, with the righteousness from the law, Perfect, blameless, man. <laughs> it's an amazing statement. The righteousness according to the law, Paul proclaimed that he was blameless. That's pretty impressive. And he says it's a pile of dung, a pile of manure. He says, all of that I have suffered the loss of so that I can know Christ. So we see, even though we don't know if Paul was the author of Hebrews, we look at Philippians, we look at Galatians, we look at Romans, we look at Colossians, we realize they were all in agreement. They were all in agreement with each other. So the warnings, we just went through some of the teachings, some of the warnings were that there is a distinction between the traditions of men, the religions of men, and the new creation in Christ. There's no overlap between tradition, religion, and the new creation in Christ. It's really interesting to think about this. If it's true that the word of God is more powerful than any two-edged sword, what is it that is more powerful than the word of God? Jesus said, the traditions of men make the word of God of no effect. It's interesting that the traditions of men actually nullify the work of Christ. So some of the warnings. Now, our brother Ray, I don't see him here. He must have left. Our brother Ray mentioned some of these things about seeing the church as being kind of sluggish and kind of backing off a little bit, some of the warnings that have been, that are in the book of Hebrews, this is the thing that stunned me when I began to study it. The book of Hebrews, I was able to find 62 specific warnings that were all within the same type of warning. They were warnings against passivity, and neglect, and just sort of things oozing, things oozing away. The first one starts in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, uh, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We just drift away. The actual terminology there 
that we let it drift past. And it's specifically a word used with reference to a boat going downstream and you not paying attention to where you are, so you go past the dock. Well, when you're in a boat that's unpowered going downstream, going back to the dock is a serious problem, especially when it's like a big seagoing boat, you know, that <laughs> can't turn around in the middle and go back and so forth. But it says, we must, we're obligated, we have to pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And then in verse 3, it says, because how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, if we preoccupy ourselves with doing this, the right thing, at the right time, at the right place, our salvation doesn't have a chance to take hold. It doesn't grow past the beginning into the long obedience in the same direction and the long repentance in the same direction and the long endurance in the same direction. And Jesus said, it's he that endures to the end who will be saved. I'm not going to go through all of these because all 62 of them would take forever, but we're going to talk about some of them. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says that we give up our confidence by not holding on to it. How easy it is it to let go of something compared to hold on to something? All you have to do is stop. It's a move to passivity. You just release it. In chapter 3, verse 12, it talks about having an unbelieving heart that results in falling away. falling away from the living God. Now, there's some doctrinal things in here that are difficult to deal with. There's people who believe that you can't fall away from the living God, and yet we have some 50 warnings against it in the book of Hebrews. Now, I don't know if, you know, there's some people who say, well, the book of Hebrews was written to the Jews. Okay, so the Jews can lose their salvation, but Gentiles can't. That really doesn't make sense either. So, to have an evil, unbelieving heart that lets us fall away. I don't know. Probably most of you hadn't, haven't repelled out of a helicopter. But when you do it, you stand in the door, and then you fall out. That's how you repel out of a helicopter. You have a rope that's hooked in there. It goes through your repelling harness. And you either stand or sit. The, the, the fun way is to sit on it. And you stand up. You're sitting on the floor of the helicopter with your feet on the, the uh, struts. And you stand up and lean forward and just fall away. It doesn't take any energy at all to fall away. All it takes is the lack of energy. Now let me ask you, do you think that it's an intentional lack of energy when I fall away from a helicopter? It's not by accident. It's intentional. So falling away from the living God is an intentional move away from retaining our position. Now this is, again, 
the book of Hebrews, the word of God. Hebrews 3.13, it says, Encourage one another, as long as it's called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, think about, let's say, <clears throat> you have some sort of a piece of a, a wire that, in fact, I have one right now in my computer. <laughs> you open up my computer and the the uh, screen is all messed up. And it's because after you open and close and open and close and open and close and open and close, the wire does what? It work hardens and it breaks. But that's a passive thing. Hardening occurs when you just let something lay. Hardening occurs on a piece of leather like if you have a really fine leather saddle and you don't oil it, after 40 years, it's just a hard, crispy thing that is all cracked and everything. It says that we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if we're not careful. If we're not careful. We have to deal with that. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says... The problem comes when we do not hold fast our confidence. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, it says that we will not be able to enter. That, that we're stuck outside. We can't enter in. It's a passive thing that makes it so that we're stuck outside. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says that the message was not allowed to benefit them, and so they came short of entering the rest. Another passive thing. I didn't, didn't let it have any effect on me. Chapter 2. The word was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. Chapter 4, verse 6. They failed to enter. Chapter 5 has some really strong ones. We look at chapter 5 of Hebrews and go to verse 11. It says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since we have become dull of hearing. Okay, we all have, a, have worked with knives before. If we say this knife has become dull, what was it before it was dull? It was sharp. What's it take to make a, sh a, a sharp knife dull? Use. Right? Over time, over use, it just becomes dull. We don't intentionally dull it. If we do intentionally dull it, there's a problem. But if we don't intentionally maintain its sharpness, it just gets dull. And this says, here the author is saying, the situation about Jesus being a, being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, and concerning him we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. So you used to be able to hear fine. You used to have a sharp ear. 
But what did you do to let it become dull? You just didn't maintain it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, what expectation did he have of them by this time? Why would he have that expectation? Probably because they had had enough input and had demonstrated enough in their life to be teachers. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you have need again to be taught. So, what's that word again indicate? That they had been taught before and they had let it slip. They'd let it fall away. And so where they were supposed to be wasn't possible anymore. And it says, you have come to need milk and not solid food. What do you think they were needing before they came to need milk again? Solid food. The word of righteousness. And after mediocrity for how long? After ease and simple stuff. For how long? It says that they went from needing solid food to needing milk again. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk. Oh, now we see what their problem was. They had gotten to a place where they were able to handle solid food. They were able to, able to eat steak and lasagna and fried chicken and good stuff, you know? But it says somehow they went back to milk. And it says, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. They went backwards. They lost a lot of the qualities and the, the things that they needed in good food. Because if you eat or drink only milk, you're nutritionally have lacks. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature. So they actually, by being passive in their life, they dematured. They went backwards. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So our discernment is lacking, our maturity is lacking, all because we became passive in maintaining our physical, I mean our spiritual health. Only because we became lacking in maintaining our spiritual fitness. Only because we went backwards, we, we just let it slip. We didn't maintain it. How hard is it to maintain fitness? I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the physiology of fitness, but for people who are extremely fit, they actually regress three days for every day they miss of working out. That's how fast they go back. And people think, well, when I had my back surgery, I went 30 day, uh, three months without doing anything. And I, I really didn't feel like I'd lost everything, but I did. <laughs> and when I went back to try and do some workouts, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the simplest things. Now, 
how often do we do that spiritually? That's what this book is about. This book is telling us, guys, if you don't maintain your spiritual fitness, your oneness with Christ, the life of Christ in the soul of man, and if you substitute doing the right thing at the right place at the right time, the religions of man, and if you substitute the traditions of man, you lose it. To the point, this says, of falling away. This is scary stuff if you're serious about the word of God. It says in chapter 5, verse 13, they partake only of milk. Here's this failure to launch syndrome. This is an adult child who's still participating, who's only partaking milk. He fails to make that transition. Chapter 5, verse 14, the lack of maturity. Again, failure to launch. In chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Again, the failure to launch. The fact that an adult child does not successfully make the transition to maturity. Verse 6, 6, chapter 6, 6 says that they've fallen away. Verse 11, they don't show any diligence. Chapter, or verse 12, that they're sluggish. You ever feel sluggish? Verse 15, not patiently waiting. Chapter 7, 25, not drawing near. In, verse, in chapter 8, verse 5, it says that they choose to worship a copy and shadow rather than the real thing. How many of us do that? We worship a copy, a shadow. We worship the music rather than the God that we worship. We love the music. I've talked to so many people who love pieces of worship music. And then you ask them, well, what does that really mean? What's that about? What, is it, what does it say? Well, I, I don't know. I've never thought of the words. So how much worship of God is there when you're listening to heresy with your hands raised? I don't know. Again, there's 63 of those scattered through the whole book. But I want to go to the admonitions. The admonitions. There's a, there's a verb form that we're not too familiar with in English. It's called the subjunctive. And the word lest, L-E-S-T, in Hebrews, is very common. And the word lest is what we call a negative subjunctive that has the intention of preventing something. So the first one, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time. So this lest at any time, it indicates a hypothetical situation that I desire to see reality in. That's what a subjunctive is for. It's a 
hypothetical situation that I desire to see as real. So we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we let them drift away. So we have a solution. These are solutions. If I'm not going to let it drift away, I need to pay more earnest heed. Now that earnest there, that is the word that means super abundantly. Do you remember when Jesus was being crucified and um, Pilate went out to the Jews and he says, I don't see anything wrong with him. I'm going to let him go. And um, what, do you, what do you think? And they said, no, crucify him. And so he went back in and, and he dealt with him a bit. And then he says, it's your, it's, you folks have a, a policy that you release one person. Who shall we release? Jesus or Barabbas, the murderer? And it says that they cried out super abundantly. They cried out super abundantly. This is what it says in order for us to not let the things that we hear of here drift away, the things that we've been taught, that we have to pay super abundant heed to it. Superabundance, when it's something that we have to do, is a bit demanding. And it makes us not want to do it. In chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, he called these guys brethren. He called these guys brethren. He's talking to Christians. And you'll find out that he also uses the term let us. So he's including himself in the group. He says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Whose responsibility of it is it for us to not be unbelievers? And it says, take heed to that. Be a, pay attention to it. Don't let it happen. Otherwise, you'll fall away. Chapter 3, verse 13. Exhort one another while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened. Now, there's an interesting thing that goes on here. With the lests, with the lests that we're talking about, these are directed to impact us individually. But at the beginning, he most often makes it a corporate solution. So he says, exhort one another daily, lest any one of you. So we have the responsibility in our exhortation of one another so that any one of us won't do the wrong thing. Now, any one of us has the responsibility to not do it, but it's fueled by the exhortation of our beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we fail to do it, that's why Paul says, 
For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, lest they, so that they can be saved. You think, what? I endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they can be saved? Do we realize that our endurance affects other people's salvation? Did you know that if you don't endure, it affects my salvation? Did you know that if I don't endure, it affects your salvation? I don't understand it. I don't know what that means exactly. But I'm not willing to find out, and I'm not interested in finding out. I'm not willing to find out by me not enduring and having it affect you. And I'm not interested in finding out by having you guys not endure and having it affect me. <laughs> so we have this, this dichotomy going on here that we have to deal with this. Hebrews 4.1, let us therefore fear, lest any one of you be hardened. Hebrews 4.11, let us labor therefore, lest anyone fall by unbelief. Hebrews 12.3, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint. Getting weary and faint. You find your weariness sometimes, like when you get up early in the morning and you go to sit and read the Bible and you wake up two hours later with drool on your Bible. <laughs> I see a lot of recognition there. <laughs> it says, let us labor so that we don't do that. Let us Endure. Let us not be wearied and faint. Chapter 12, verse 13. Make straight paths, lest that which is lame be turned out. That means that we make straight paths, lest that which is lame be turned out. We have responsibility for those who are spiritually lame who are spiritually weak, who are spiritually in need of healing. And it says that we have to deal with that so that that doesn't happen. This, this is putting, pouring tremendous amount of responsibility on us, which is interesting because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it puts responsibility on us because we've been made partakers of the divine nature. And by the promises of God, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We're not lacking anything. Verse 15 of chapter 12. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And verse 16. Lest there be, an, be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel sold his birthright, the next verse says, and he sought repentance and wasn't able to do it. Ooh, that's a big lest. Are we willing to take that kind of a risk where we push the, the envelope so far that our repentance is no longer available? Again, I don't know what that means, but I'm not willing to say it's not in Scripture. It says it right there. 2 Timothy 2 verse 20 also makes the statement that we pray for people so that if possible, so that if possible, 
God would grant them repentance. Is there an assumption that we can repent anytime we want to? We're taught that, but it's not from Scripture. Now we have also the let us. That's why some people have in the past, in the 70s, it was kind of a popular thing to call Hebrews the salad book because it has so much lettuce in it. <laughs> and I remember that well. <laughs> and this is what we call a passive, volative subjunctive, which again is a hypothetical, hypothetical situation that you desire to have happen. Volative means that it's based on your, de that it uh, functions through your desires and your wishes. That I wish this to be so. So he says, let us therefore fear. So he's giving us the, the, re the means of making these things happen. Let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left for us any of you should seem to come short of it. So we have those lests that say, man, this is what's going to happen if you don't get it right. But now we have the let us, which is say, and this is what needs to happen so that you can get it right. Let us therefore fear. I think one of the things most missing in the church today is the fear of God. And along with that, the hatred of sin. Those two things would make a big difference, huge difference. If we're going to neglect so great a salvation, what makes us understand the greatness of our salvation if it's not the terribleness of our sin? Because we are saved from sin. So if I have a light view of sin, I'm going to have a weak view of salvation. If I have an utter hatred for sin, my view of salvation is going to be great because I know how bad that sin really is. And if you want to be wise, what is wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So that's where wisdom comes in. It's wise to hate evil. It's wise to hate evil. So let us therefore fear, lest we come short of entering the rest. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore Labor, and that's that word agonizomai, which means to agonize to the point of agony. <laughs> that's the word. Let us labor to enter that rest, lest we fall short by unbelief. So all these things that the book was written about, all of these issues of Failure to launch, of being overtaken by the willingness to be religious rather than real, and to be traditional rather than to be real. He's giving us solutions for. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, therefore, leaving behind the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That word perfection there means maturity. He's dealing with people that he recognizes as have not uh, 
made the transition from spiritual babes to spiritual adults. Do you remember what Paul said? When I was a child, I thought like a child, spoke like a child, and acted like a child. Then when I turned 13, I acted like a teenager. No. He said, then I became a man. I was a child and became a man. He doesn't say I was a child and then had 40 years of adolescence and then became a man at age 50. That's not what he said. But it's the way that we behave as Christians. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. In verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance means not doubting. Doubting, D-O-U-B-T, comes from the same word as double, D-O-U-B-L-E. And it means to have a wavering of thoughts between, to have opposing thoughts, two opinions about something that you know is true. Because people who are unbelievers don't doubt. It's only people who believe something who doubt it. And we're not called to be doubters. We're called to be men of great faith, men and women of great faith. We don't want God to say, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? We want him to say, whoa, I've never seen such great faith, even in all Israel. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love love and good works. And it goes all the way through. Hebrews 13, 15, the last one. By him, therefore, Let us offer the sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. When are we supposed to do that? James 1 says, whenever you fall into various trials, rejoice. Be thankful, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, about 18, 19, 20, right in there. Rejoice evermore. In everything give thanks. Why? Because this is God's will. How many times do we hear people say, I just want to know what God's will is? I know what God's will is. Be thankful. Rejoice. Pray. So we have this whole thing in Hebrews. It's a glorious book. And he lays down all of this glorious stuff that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the the sacrifices. He's better than the priests. He's better. He's better. He's better. And we make it a tack on, an add-on to our religious life. Or we discard that betterness and say, well, we'll just do the right things. And that way, we'll satisfy the situation. So I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage you to not let things slip. To not let yourself become dull. To not let yourself become sluggish. To not let go, to not fall, to not ooze away from God. That's that's the difficult thing. When somebody makes a jump away from God, you can recognize it. But when they ooze away from God, all of a sudden, 20, 30 years down the road, you realize, wow, there's a big difference in that guy. I remember him... I remember him as an on-fire young person for God. And now look at him. He oozed. He oozed. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we bless you and thank you that you have made provision for our weakness. But your intent in doing that was that not was not that we should remain weak, but that we should walk with you in your strength. You said, be strong, act like men, and let all that you do be done in love. And that you've given us everything that pertains to that life and godliness that you've called us to. And Lord, you've put responsibilities on us that you have provided everything that we need to fulfill. And I pray that you would convict our hearts and bring about repentance in our lives so that we could be men and women in whom the Spirit of God is. Men and women full of the content, not only of the Word of God, but of the Spirit of God. And that we're able and willing and ready and eager to communicate that content to the world around us that is desperately in need of seeing truth and not just another religion or another tradition. So we surrender ourselves to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.